HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Washington Post journalist Laura Riley. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Laura about the forces behind the rising cost of our food, whether that will continue into 2022, and we'll hear Laura's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia is more closely associated with fancy food than money-saving meals. Plus, Americans tend to think of French food as expensive, even though at the heart of French cooking is the dressing up of quite basic ingredients. A meal foy pastry makes a lot of flour, butter, cream, and salt, all very economical staples. Nevertheless, Julia's career was certainly born out of home economics. She fully intended mastering the art of French cooking to be a helpful guide to good food for the average 1960s American housewife, charged not only with preparing meals, but the cost-effective running of a modern household. Julia's emphasis was not about saving money, but on the many benefits of home cooking, which is inherently more economical than so-called value-added ready meals from the store, partly because it relies on fresh produce and your own labor. It's also more nutritious. Someone who closely follows the economics which impact our home kitchens is Laura Riley. Laura is the business of food reporter for the Washington Post, where she covers the financial side of the food world. Previously a food critic at the Tampa Bay Times, where she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist 
for her work exposing false farm-to-table restaurant claims and also for her restaurant reviews. Also a veteran of the San Francisco Chronicle and Baltimore Sun, Laura's cooked professionally, is a graduate of the California Culinary Academy, and been twice nominated for James Beard Awards for her reporting. She's also the author of four Florida-focused moon travel guides. Laura joins us today to talk about the forces behind the rising cost of food and what we can expect in the coming new year. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted you could be here and talk about this this topic that I think is on everyone's mind right now. So let's just dive right in. Why have food prices been rising and, and, and just how much have they risen? So it really depends on the category in terms of the why. Okay. Um, but overall, let's just take a, like a month like October. Overall, uh, October 2021, food was 5.4% higher than October 2020. And it was high then. So we've seen significant rises. We've seen wholesale beef prices up 23 to 26% in 2021. Um, so beef is probably the very top in terms of the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the stratospheric rise. I think we've all seen that at the grocery store. So then pork is up, you know, 8%. Poultry's up 4 to 5%. Eggs, maybe 35 to 4.5%. Um, oils are up about 5%. But soybean oil is up in some cases, you know, up up to 100%, depending on, on the context. Um, so the only thing that's kind of come through this stretch uh, without seeing those kind of rises um, is milk, is dairy, is about flat. Um, mm, but pretty okay. much every other category that we can point to and that we will talk about um, has seen significant and in some cases unprecedented increases in price. Okay. And so what, tell us more about what's behind those. Cause I think I remember, I don't know if it was just pre pandemic or during the pandemic, there, there was at one point a pork shortage. Cause there were like something like a bunch of a big crop of pigs died maybe in China from disease or something. Sure. So if just taking the, the pork part, part um, yes. So two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, the whole Chinese swine population was decimated by African swine fever. And that that has kind of, African swine fever has kind of marched across Europe. It's gotten perilously close to U.S. soil. It's in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, there's some talk that it may be in Puerto Rico. So that we're not out of the woods on African swine fever. But we ended up selling a lot of pork from the U.S. into China to supplement their major losses there. So we did have a shortfall of pork on this side. But in terms of the meat industry uh, kind of writ large, what really impacted things last year in 2020 was uh, COVID outbreaks in meat processing facilities. These are facilities where it's really impossible to keep that six foot distance. And, you know, we saw incredible outbreaks for JBS, for Tyson, for all of the big meat companies last spring that shut things down significantly. And producer on the producer side, they had animals that couldn't go to slaughter that then some, you know, even and pork producers were even euthanizing their animals because there was just this bottleneck at slaughter. And then we saw that in the grocery store in terms of empty shelves. So uh, that was a big part of what happened. And then we've also seen a huge disconnect because of the closure of food service, because of restaurants closing last spring and everyone pivoting to eat all their meals at home, we saw a real disconnect in terms of what people 
eat in restaurants and what people buy for home, they're different. So, you know, in, in the home context last spring, when all the restaurants shut down, all of a sudden, you know, we're used to buying the cheap stuff. We like ground beef. We like, you know, chuck. We, we, don't, we don't buy the super expensive Chateaubriand for home use, largely because we're a little scared of it. You know, we're a little scared of spending that kind of money and we're not confident in our cooking abilities. So certain segments of food basically had nowhere to go last spring. Um, and so then you saw spikes in the price of things like ground beef, but then there's this, you know, kind of filet mignon languishing, waiting for food service to open back up. So that was part of it. I mean, it, it, seafood, same thing. So you saw um, lobster, crab, oysters. I mean, no one eats oysters at home, evidently. Um, so there was this huge bottleneck of all of this product and nowhere to sell it into last spring. Um, and then huge spikes in things that we are comfortable cooking at home, you know, salmon, uh, you know, boneless, skinless chicken breasts. We've had a huge uh, surge in people cooking wings at home. I guess maybe we're, we're missing, you know, the sports bars and, and going out. Um, so there's been a big reshuffling, the great American reshuffling of food. Um, Last spring, there was also a lot of food that is packaged. That's a, it's a package size issue. Things are packaged for food service. Those number 10 huge cans, you're not going to use that at home. So there was a lot of food, flour in 50-pound bags, you know, beef packaged where it's like a quarter of a, you know, a, a, like a primal cut, like one of those huge cuts of beef. So those go into food service, and it's, you have no takers on the, on the retail side. So a lot of food needed to be repackaged, which obviously requires labor. And as we know, labor has been uh, in short supply in the past you know, year plus. So we've talked about the kind of inefficiencies that the pandemic created in terms of the supply and the sizing, but that's all kind of, I don't know, a little bit older factor, or is it still having a ripple effect or have some new factors kind of entered the equation later in 2021? Yes, there are all kinds of new factors. So uh, one thing about food that is different than, you know, automotive parts is that it's ephemeral. A lot of it, uh, you know, rots if you don't use it swiftly and if those supply chains get snarled. Um, so we had lots of imports from China or, you know, Southeast Asia or whatever of raw ingredients that basically languished in ports, in port cities in California or Louisiana. So, you know, things like fresh ginger, you know, a whole sh container of that just sitting in, in Long Beach or, you know, wherever, um, it goes bad. So there's that factor. And then there's also the issue of where climate change and extreme weather events butt up against some of these supply chain issues. So in 2021, we had um, incredibly poor crop harvest of barley, of durum wheat, of other uh, certain other kinds of wheat. Um, and so you have these shortfalls on the the commodity grain side or on certain foods. I mean, California rice this summer, um, they didn't have enough water. They had extremely high heat and drought, not enough water. A lot of rice growers decided to sell their water allotment to the almond growers and to not mm. plant this summer. So if you are an American who likes short grain, white California rice, like the Korean or you know, sushi style rice, um, a lot mm. of the California crop didn't get planted. Um, so you have the same, you know, computer chips, toys, all these, you know, Christmas trees from China, all these things have had shipping problems, labor problems, 
trucking problems. Food has all of those, plus the added issues associated with uh, extreme weather events and yields. So a perfect storm, essentially, of forces coming into play. We might have had the climate change issues um, already, but the past shocks of the pandemic, and particularly related to the labor supply, have just kind of contributed to cost cost increases in the whole chain of production at sort of every point. Absolutely. Although I'm not allowed to say a perfect storm anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. That comes <laughs> there have up been a lot too many of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is no perfect storm. There are just many yeah. storms. So yep. the, the one thing you haven't touched on that I think is relevant and what you've talked around is the, econ- the basic economic pre- premise of supply and demand. There's more demand than supply. And so that's driving up prices. But could you talk a little bit about the demand side? Because my impression, but I'm not sure it's correct, it certainly gets reported this way, but maybe not with data, is 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 there been stronger increased demand even outside of just the return to quote unquote normal from the pandemic? Absolutely. Across every category of food. So last spring, a surge in demand was explained by our collective panic. You know, we we hoarded food, we irrationally stockpiled food, which caused other people to irrationally stockpile food. If you go to the grocery store and you see an empty shelf, you say to yourself, other people know something that I don't and I need to follow suit. So last spring, a lot of the surge, you know, first of all, we all started eating at home and cooking for ourselves. So there was this huge surge in, in purchasing at retail. Mm. Um, so that kind of dissipated over time. But then you had huge federal programs aimed at, um, you know, COVID relief. So Mm -hmm. we had two sets of, you know, PPP loans for small businesses. We had the restaurant revitalization fund for for restaurateurs. We had the child tax credits. We had um, enhanced unemployment. All of these things were aimed at putting more money in the hands of Americans who were suffering. Um, you know, SNAP benefits. I mean, this, this, there are 40 million Americans on SNAP right now. That's what we used to call food stamps. So that group of people, every single person on SNAP was uh, put at maximum benefit last year. And people who were already at maximum benefit, Biden gave them an extra, I think it's like $75 uh, per family. So there was a huge surge in the amount of food relief money. Uh, that's that food safety net had a huge surge. So what do people buy? You know, everybody on SNAP, they're buying more food. Um, so, and we also saw a pivot in the way people receive SNAP. So historically, um, SNAP and WIC benefits were things that you had to redeem at grocery stores. Well, starting last year, those benefits could be used online. So Amazon, you know, Walmart, like, so we basically everybody started doing a lot of e-commerce in addition to in-person, uh, which changed some of those dynamics and which also resulted in kind of a surge of purchasing across the board. And so that leads us to the other dirty word that's on everybody's mind or certainly in the news, inflation. And inflation, right, there's sort of inflation with a capital I and inflation with a little i, which is, you know, it can mean different things like just prices are up temporarily or it can mean a, you know, persistent pattern of increasing prices. What's your take from from your chair at The Post on, on what's happening and how worried we should be about inflation now? 
Well, I think that the Fed is really working on what they can do and is very panicked about uh, some kind of long-term inflationary situation. Um, I, you know, that's kind of above my pay grade, but it's certainly indicators are that, that it's coming. Um, and we're seeing it in home prices, in rental prices, in automotive. I mean, God, the surge in, in you know, uh, used cars, all of these kinds of things are indicators um, of what's yet to come. Um, so all of the, if, if all of the inputs for food, if labor, if transportation, if packaging, all of these things continue to surge, wholesalers and retailers will, will have no choice but to pass those additional costs onto consumers. So yes, we are very likely to see continued high prices into 2022, um, kind of at the commodity level and at the kind of retail level. Um, so you know, I, I, I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news. It seems like that's a big part of my job these days. But yes, I think that there is some indication that we will see continued high prices for food moving into next year. So we you, you touched on it a little bit, but I think that's also been something that everyone feels like, oh, I've learned more about that than I ever cared to, which is the global supply chain. And do you also think as consumers – that is going to it's not going to get resolved quickly and it's going to be something that all through next year we're still going to be talking about and learning about or or is that something that will fade into the background and become yesterday's news you know i think that um what the last two years have done for many of us is focus our attentions on the provenance of our food. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, uh, three years ago, if, if I had proposed a story on, you know, tracking all of the inputs that go into a key lime pie, a commercial key lime pie, my editor would have thought I was nuts. You know, who cares about where mm. the guar gum comes from? But all of a sudden, all of us have a much keener collective interest in where our food comes from and all of the kind the minutia. Um, you know, I, I've, I talk to supply chain experts all the time and they are so unaccustomed to being rock stars. You know, it's kind of a <laughs> tedious field to go into, if you ask me. Um, but, you know, it, it really has reshuffled our priorities and I think also made us keenly aware of the fragility of our food system and the ways in which we need more local foods, more regional food systems, um, kind of food access issues, I think for a lot of us are are much more um, of note um, than they were previously. So I think it's it's kind of a great reawakening. And, you know, I'd like to think that it will prompt um, more legislative efforts to for food transparency, um, you know, labeling things. Uh, you know, I think that there is a lot of stuff on the table, so to speak, um, that relates to um, really pulling back the curtain on where our food comes from. I mean, we've had a kind of a slow, slippery slope towards anonymous food in the past, you know, 10 years. when I mean, we've had things like the country of origin labeling laws go away for, for meat, that kind of thing. And, and I think that we're back to a point where we want to, we want more information from a consumer perspective. And, and that of course always drives uh, the regulatory side. Um, so I do think that some of this uh, focus on supply chain will yield more resiliency at the local and regional level um, kind of moving forward. 
Well, that's a perfect segue to what I want to pick up on after the break. So we're going to come back very shortly and talk with uh, Laura Riley from The Washington Post with more about the future of our food in 2022. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to the Washington Post business of food reporter, Laura Riley, about the rising cost of food and the global food system. So, Laura, in the first half of the show, we were just ending on that note about kind of the all the news and focus on the global supply chain and global supply chain experts becoming the new rock stars of at least the media world. And you were kind of talking about it, I think, in some ways, the silver lining of it, which is this heightened awareness about where food comes from and the costs associated with with it, and even the exploitation, particularly of labor. So I was curious that I'm going to suppose that we all share, or at least are open to the goal of our food system becoming more sustainable. But I feel like all of these shocks are maybe making that goal harder, or would you say they're more part of this recalibration from years of just enjoying cheap food without questioning it? Well, I certainly think that um, the kind of the specter of climate change coupled with all of these snarls um, have have made the average American much more uh, thoughtful, I guess, about the food that they're eating. And certainly if you look at just even what what some of the climate change meetings, the one in Glasgow or some of the kind of domestic um, you know, uh, bills that are coming down the pike about sustainability, there's an awful lot of attention right now put on, you know, carbon capture and methane capture and how to monetize it, how to basically incentivize farmers and ranchers to do the right thing. And then how do you convey that message to consumers? So, I mean, if you look at all of the major from, you know, Pepsi to Kellogg to, you know, every major company, uh, consumer packaged good company in the world has put out uh, their sustainability message, you know, carbon neutral by 2030 or by 2050 or whatever it is. Um, and there's a lot of question about whether that's just, you know, sheer fantasy or are these things realistic and how will they be quantified and are there going to be kind of third party audits on how these companies get there? But certainly, Consumers are more focused about, uh, you know, on on the harm that their diet is doing, obviously, to their own health, because as we know, the the 
you know, obesity crisis in this country uh, really left certain populations very vulnerable to COVID. And I think that we're all aware of the, the downfall of, of having kind of lifestyle-related diseases, especially in a pandemic. So I think we're all aware of what the, the harm that our diets do to us, but also to the planet. Um, so I do think that maybe the pandemic kick-started some of these conversations a little earlier than they might have otherwise happened. Could I just pick up on what, what you just said about farmers? And I don't think this is what you were implying, but but I thought it'd be good to talk about it, is that you were kind of indicating, well, what farmers' behaviors will be will kind of dictate certain things. But I feel like it's it's become very policy-driven, which is farmers will grow and produce what they're incentivized by the market and the government to grow. And now, as you mentioned, those big corporations like PepsiCo and – General Mills and Kellogg's and all of those producers who make a lot of money from the production of certain grains for their products, they're now in that mix. So it's not just a dialogue between the farmers and the government. It's the farmers, the government, and corporations who don't necessarily want subsidies for, for certain products to go away. Do, how, do you, how do you see that, that dilemma? Well, I don't think it's so much about what they grow as how they grow. That's the new conversation. So um, it's about low-till and no-till. It's about what a very strategic uh, feeding of inputs to, you know, whether you're talking about fertilizers or, you know, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. It's about, um, you know, use of drones and AI and all of these things uh, to minimize all the bad stuff that, that farmers do uh, and to, to kind of maximize best practices. Um, so it's, it's much more about incentivizing farmers in terms of how, you know, kind of regenerative ag practices. It's not so much like, do I want you to grow soybeans and corn or, you know, peas for, for alt meat pea protein products. Um, it's much more providing guidance and, and a framework for monitoring best practices. And since you sit in Washington, certainly you've had various people on this show from Marion Nestle to others kind of talking about the Department of Agriculture being, well, let's politely say behind the curve on those kind of conversations and still working on a kind of policy direction that's, um, well, I was going to use the word antediluvian. But what, what's your take from Washington right now? Well, I've heard Vilsack speak, you know, at great length about – uh, food insecurity, about, you know, uh, inequities in farming. I mean, he's had a huge focus on kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word reparations, but kind of um, providing financial and, 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 you know, other kinds of assistance to farmers of color or minority farmers. Um, and then he's really talked an awful lot about carbon sequestration and, and regenerative ag and, and, you know, providing a financial framework for carbon credits, all these kinds of things, I think are much more top of mind than in his last uh, stint in the job under, uh, under the Obama administration. I think that, that there, the, the landscape has changed enough that these all seem much more uh, central issues. I mean, if you listen to some of the ag uh, committee meetings, 
you know, with Stabano and all of these, you know, it's, it's largely about regenerative ag practices now. So I, I think that there's been some kind of serious galvanizing that has occurred. Um, and some of it may be the pandemic and some of it may just be seeing those extreme weather events, you know, the, the heat dome of the Pacific Northwest or, you know, some of the crop failures, you know, cantaloupes in, in California Central Valley or whatever, seeing those things repeatedly um, and, you know, see them escalate in terms of frequency, I think has a lot of people concerned about how we feed so many of us, you know, with arable land shifting and diminishing. Well, it's fascinating. Just for, I just finished reading Kristen Hanna's wonderful book, The Four Winds, which is a work of fiction, but it's set during the Dust Bowl. And she's, um, if you don't know her writing, she's well known for doing extensive historical research. And usually that's represented at least the circumstances and the environment quite accurately. And I had not remembered understanding in my American history of how much, while the Dust Bowl was um, climate-related, a lot of its issues were were caused by ecological damage through the way that American farmers were farming. And in fact, in that situation, the government actually blamed the farmers for creating the Dust Bowl through their bad practices, but it also marked one of these shifts in a, a sort of broader outlook toward how farming was done in America. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that book. I mean, that book was also really about climate change related migration, which is something we're seeing, you know, that gets politicized, whether it's on the southern border of the U.S. or wherever, but we're seeing it all over the world now. I mean, if you look at a place like Madagascar right now, you know, they can't farm or grow anything in the South now and everybody's moved to the North and, you know, it puts things like vanilla at risk um, and obviously the livelihood of all the people that live there. So, you know, we, this is a an increasing focus for a lot of people, the idea of um, ag practices exacerbating climate issues and causing the huge migration of people. Which, if we go back to the four winds, also then intersects with labor, right? And how uh, the people who uh, grow and 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 pick our food are are treated and compensated, right? Sure. I mean, I I, I did a, a lot of reporting this summer on uh, you know kind of extreme heat and what it did to different crops in California and the Pacific Northwest, and you know, like you do a story on. Um, canning tomatoes in California. And a lot of the growers, you know, they had limited irrigation water and, you know, a, a lot of high heat days. And they may say, tomatoes are not that remunerative and we are going to take our water and we are going to water things that we have a lot of money and infrastructure put into, you know, our tree fruits, our tree, you know, nuts. Um, and we're just going to let those canning tomatoes go. So we are going to see certain crops um, seeded entirely to Mexico because labor is cheaper in Mexico. So, I mean, you're already, if you go to Whole Foods, you're already seeing that in the the, the produce aisle. The the provenance of a lot of the food now is, is from Mexico because we just can't compete on price. And we have, in the places where we've historically grown those things, we're seeing a lot of extreme weather. So I was going to ask you if one of the coping things that you'd recommend for people either finding um, prices too high or shortages, should should there be a new Victory Garden 
uh, movement, which is more kind of, I don't know, the result of climate change than anything else. Or if you live in a water parched area, having your own garden to grow water intensive plants like tomatoes is equally a bad idea. Well, I think we saw that. If, if you remember last spring, uh, seed catalogs completely sold out. Everybody was like, oh gosh, I got to plant a victory garden. And I, some of it was just therapy. You know, it's like how we all mm. were making our Coping. sourdough bread or, you know, those kinds of things. We were doing things that, that gave us some nurturance um, and, you know, growing things does that for us. So we definitely saw that. And I think some of that will persist. Um, a lot of places, it's probably not, you know, it's going to be a lot of heartache to grow things where it's, where it's too hot and too dry. Um, you know, so I, I do think that moving forward, um, more local uh, food sources, you know, whether that's indoor vertical farming. I mean, urban farming is, is as, as the price of light bulbs comes down and as some of those kind of techie components uh, gets less expensive, that is more and more viable, you know, because you're talking about much, you know, super diminished transportation miles. If you're having an indoor kind of warehouse vertical farm in an urban setting that basically sells all of its product within three miles. I mean, that's feasible now. We've, we're seeing farms, indoor farms, that actually are adjacent to a grocery store and they sell all their stuff into that grocery store. So that's really smart and limited transportation miles if you can make the financial side of it work in terms of you know growing inputs. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more stuff like that. But as we know, you know, I, I talk to people at the USDA all the time about, oh, how do you, you know, for low-income Americans, how do you... Um, make the financial end of things work. Well, you can make cheap, you can make great cheap food. The only factor that you need is time, right? You know, if you, if you have rice and beans and you can do all of that yourself and you have access to an instant pot or a, you know, a pressure cooker, whatever, it is very possible to make wholesome, delicious food, but it really requires human effort. And that's the piece that for a lot of people you know, who maybe haven't had the, the luxury of remote work this past year, um, that's the piece that's missing frequently. If, if you have to punch, punch a clock, you know, you, you just don't have that person home to, to simmer stuff on the back burner. Um, so, you know, that's always going to be the limiter is, is, is having a person available to invest the time. Yeah, Absolutely. I, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you, you you've mentioned or previewed for us that we can pr pretty much expect uh, food prices to remain high or even get higher um, in 2022. But I, I wanted to ask you sort of what's your outlook overall or whether there's also some kind of milestones or warning signs we should look out for for things um you know, improving or getting worse? Do we need to, you know, start monitoring the crop reports more so than we ever have in our lives? Well, you know, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but I do think that there may be some shortfalls uh, down the pike. And certainly everything is interrelated, right? So if you're talking about, you know, no one's going to be looking at soy and, and corn futures, you know, I mean, very few people. But those are really impactful in terms of the eventual cost of meat, right? Those are the, the feed stock for a lot of, and then you have things like ethanol, you know, the, the more we rely on biofuels, the more it taps those commodity grains like soy. Um, so the, the interconnectedness of all of these things um, is a strong indicator that, that you know, you, those food prices may still go up. Um, and one thing we really haven't talked about is 
food at home, so what we buy at the grocery store, and food away from home, what we buy at a restaurant or you know food service venue. So mm-hmm. food away from home has has risen in price much more significantly than food at the grocery store. And that's because labor in the, as we've seen in hospitality has been so hard to come by. They've had, you know, a lot of places where they've they've mandated $15 an hour wages or places where they've just had to raise those wages in order to compete and get the people from, you know, away from the restaurant down the block. So restaurant prices, um, have have risen dramatically, even more so than than grocery prices. So I think for a lot of us looking into 2022, we may think of restaurants as more of a splurge event than than we did pre-pandemic. You know, it may not be oh, it's Tuesday night. There's nothing in the fridge. Let's go out, kids. Get in the car. It may be much more mindful decisions about about dining out, uh, which will in turn change the restaurant landscape moving forward. You know, if if you know if a lot of people don't go back to the office. Um, that's a lot of restaurants that don't have all the different day parts that they need to keep in business. So they won't be selling those breakfast sandwiches to the office workers. They won't be, there won't be business lunches for those people. And it's really hard to make a restaurant work on a single day part. Um, so we're, I think we're going to see a, a significant contra- further contraction in the restaurant world as well. Well, that's definitely consistent with the, the various chef, um, and restaurant owners that we've had on, on the program that this year, certainly they've been saying exactly that, that um, the kind of dining out culture is going to evolve or switch because fundamentally dining out, I think in their view, needs to be more expensive for all those factors you mentioned, which means it, it's it's not an every night thing as it was becoming. And I also think we'll, we've already seen a lot of closure and we may see a difference, particularly most people are predicting in the middle market of – the fact that there just won't be as many restaurants as there were. And I think for certain chefs, they found it frustrating that they had so much competition. Um, so th- that absolutely rings true with with everything we, we've been hearing. And I guess we'll, we'll just have to, to see how it pans out. I think maybe to end on a, a more optimistic note, I think it all, many people have commented that they expect it, though, to lead toward a lot more innovation in in restaurants or eating establishments and both in terms of how they're run how they're structured and and what food they serve do do you share that view as well yes i think that that restaurateurs are running headlong into uh techier uh service options whether that's you know kiosk ordering or touchless payment or or you know in the kitchen you know, robotics are definitely on the massive incline. And, you know, even things like if you get a big combi oven in your in your kitchen that has multifunction, you can maybe have one fewer person, you know, and that's one fewer person to not show up or to be, you know, be sick or whatever. So I think that we are going to see an awful lot more automation in the restaurant space um, for sure. And, you know, I, I think that that unfortunately the way – uh, pandemic relief was meted out in the restaurant world. Those two tranches of PPP and then the restaurant, uh, the the relief fund. Um, it was very inequitable, and I think a lot of people that qualify, you know, it would just 
they, you know, they funded for that RRF, they funded a third of the people that qualified. And so it really kind of arbitrarily created winners and losers. Um, and a lot of those losers are, are probably never going to be able to recoup. Um, you know, they've had two years of just treading water or kind of a slowly, you know, hollowing out every bit of savings they had. So, yeah, I think we're going to see a significant change in the restaurant landscape and uh, a move towards automation. But going back to the whole idea of, of kind of innovation and tech, you know, if you really chart um, what venture, you know, Silicon Valley venture capital money is going to the, these days, it's not the next app. It's not the kind of next TikTok type thing. It really is a lot of food tech and a lot of ag tech. So mm. I think that it's a, it's a moment where we're seeing unbelievable innovation in terms of reduction of food waste, um, of kind of precision ag tools to help farmers um, use only as much stuff, fertilizer, whatever, as they need, um, you know. And so I think we're seeing an awful lot of, you know, and then there, we haven't talked about kind of the alt, alt meat space, you know, all of these like red algae or, you know, protein made out of air. You know, we're, we're just seeing an incredible <laughs> moment of innovation there um, that will continue because we have, you know, if you look to 2050, 10 billion people and, and you know, we've, we've got a lot of people to feed and um, significant challenges in the ag space right now. All right. You heard it here first for 2022 is all about food tech and possibly higher prices. Um, we're going to come back after the break, and we'll hear Laura's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf, and let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Laura, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, some of it may be TMI, but uh, I... My my parents had babies way too young and were silly grad students at Stanford. And uh, my mother was a terrible cook to begin with. And all of a sudden, you know, I would watch my shows. I would watch Sesame Street and then Electric Company. And then she got to watch her show, The French Chef. And, you know, slowly, bit by bit, it really kind of helped all of us because she started cooking, you know, and she, you know, first it was, I think it was Hollandaise into chocolate mousse and all of those kind of early baby steps. Um, and my mother became a tremendous cook and I really do owe it all to, to Julia Child. Um, well, so my, my, uh, my parents had a, a long and wonderful marriage that ended badly some years back and my mother remarried and she, she got together with her new husband and, you know, combined households and all of that. And one night they were in the kitchen and she was cooking from her Mastering the Art of French Cooking book, which at this point was a pile of pages, you know, with, with a, the red, the kind of the, the, the red hardbound, uh, you know, spine just kind of sitting on top of the stack of pages. Mm -hmm. And as really one of his very first gifts to her 
uh, in their marriage, he took that stack of papers and the, 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 you know, broken binding and he had them rebound for her. And I thought, you know, this guy, all right, he's new in my life. But, you know, this to me is like an act of love, unlike many. What a good guy. I thought you were going to say he got her a brand new copy. And I was like, I thought it was going in a bad direction. So I, no, I love that. because you want all those, remember all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. He would have been pages, throwing away all, all the, her memories and yes, everything. All the notes, the margin notes and the blotches, you know, it's all of them kind of, uh, are, are a historical kind of reckoning, you know? So I, I think that it, he, he got it just right. Oh, that's lovely. That's not TMI at all. That's, that's what we strive for, <laughs> a personal and, and memorable. So yes, thank you very much for sharing that. And th- thanks to your mom for letting you air her personal life as well. <laughs> I, I don't know if I got permission per se. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to do it retroactively. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I mentioned things about my childhood and my parents all the time without clearing it first. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today and filling us in on all these really important things that affect everything we do. And, you know, I think I, I wanted to mention it also speaks to everything Julia was preparing us for, which is one day we are going to have to do a lot more home cooking. And uh, here we are. Here we are. And we're doing it. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Laura's on Twitter, at L. Riley. It's R-E-I-L-E-Y. And you can read more of her work on WashingtonPost.com forward slash people forward slash Laura hyphen Riley. To keep up with the latest from the foundation as we count down to the end of 2021, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please. Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>